0: Go ahead and grab your Bible, and turn to Genesis chapter 5. We are going to read through an entire chapter of of Genesis that you've probably, let's be honest, guys, you've probably skipped over this chapter about every time you've been read through Genesis. I know that I have as well. I'm guilty of this along with this as well, and it's because Genesis chapter 5 is almost entirely a genealogy. And so uh, if you're new to the church and you're like, what in the world is a genealogy, a genealogy is a list of names. So when we read the Bible, um, these lists of names kind of occur all over the Bible. You know, every book in the Bible is going to have some reference to like this list of names and people that lived and people that died and you kind know, of what they did. And for, for a lot of us, when we get to these sections of scripture, we kind of don't value that. We realize, we, we think like, man, this doesn't have anything to offer me. This list of names, this genealogy doesn't really have any real meaning to me. So, we tend to just skip over those things. And so, I I hopefully that this is a helpful illustration for you that you won't get creeped out with right off the bat. So, going through a genealogy like this is much like walking through a graveyard. And I just lost half of you at that point because you're like, nope, not me. Don't sign me up for that. I'm not one of those guys. I don't even believe in Halloween. You know, that's Reformation Day for me or whatever. And so, Walking through a graveyard, um, I've ever, if you've ever done that, it can be something that's actually pretty fun, really cool. I remember me and Kylie, when we were on our honeymoon down in Charleston, walking through some of the historic graveyards in the city of Charleston, those historic churches, just kind of reading the names off the gravestones. And at that time, I'm not sure exactly what we were entertained by as much as just like, well, maybe that would be a good baby name or whatever, you know, Henry or Charles or Margaret. And ended up, we ended up naming one of our, our children, Margaret. And so there you go. And so, so maybe when you approach genealogies like this, maybe that's the only thing you think maybe could be of value to you. You know, I don't really know what's going on here. I don't know why there's a big list of names or dates or ages and stuff. The best thing I can hope for is a good baby name out of this. But if you've ever walked through your own family graveyard before, there's something significant that happens there. Uh, my family has a uh, different... Uh, graveyards. I grew up not not far from here in Sampson County. And so there's family graveyards that I've walked through before. And those names on the headstones aren't just the lines cut in stone. They represent stories. They represent friendships that I had. They represent family members that have gone on before me. and, And those names mean stories. And so maybe for you, if you've ever done that before, those names mean a family legacy. Or maybe they mean deep wounds for you. Either way, their name and their death, they mean something to you. See, today in Genesis 5, I think that God wants to show us that this genealogy is important because this list of names is our family through Christ. I think that if you go back far enough, you know, we really believe that these are part of our physical ancestors, but more importantly, these are our spiritual ancestors in Christ. But that's not all this passage is going to say. We're going to continue past chapter 5, into the beginning part of chapter 6. So we're going to see that along with the spread of humans filling God's good earth, they are also filled the earth with death, evil, and destruction, so much so that God is going to have to intervene and decide to put an end to it. I think today we're supposed to meditate together on three main things, and this will come up on the screen for us. For all you note-takers in the room, here you go. I'm giving you the goodies early, okay? Three main things. Death reminds us of the reality of the curse. That sin brings death. We saw it in chapter 3 of Genesis. We're going to continue to see it throughout the book of Genesis. And then death also reveals to us the truth about God's nature. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is probably one of the reasons you're here. What is God really like? I mean, you've seen a lot of hard stuff in the past year. You've seen a lot of death because of a a disease, or you've seen a lot of division because of a lot of other things, what's really true about God? I think death is going to show us his true nature. Finally, death requires us to live hoping in God alone, hoping in God alone. So as we read this passage together, let's feel the weight of walking through these gravestones, if you will, walking through this graveyard together, and remember that each of these names tell a story. Each of these things have significance for us, and let's not neglect to hear the story that these names want to tell. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter five, we're gonna be reading this whole section together. Here we go. And that when you come to a name like this in scripture, and this is just for free. If you don't know how to pronounce it, just say it loud and proud. No one will ever know. It's, you don't know the difference between Lamech and Lamech, or whatever it is, whatever that thing is in the in the back of your throat that Hebrews have to do, right? It's like hawking up a loogie. You don't have to know how to do that. Just say it loud and proud in a Bible study. Here we go. You get to hear me. (laughs) Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image, he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Adam lived for 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he'd fathered Enosh, 870 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan lived 70 years, he followed Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 900, 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he followed Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Anybody getting any your baby names out of there? I'm expecting into the next parent child dedication, we're gonna have a little Mahalel and like a little Methuselah running around, right? <laughs> Maybe. So we're gonna stop there for now. And uh, you know, if you picked up on anything, there's a very clear pattern in this genealogy. God creates man, God blesses man, man has kids, then the man does what? He dies. Again and again and again, rinse, wash, repeat. This phrase, and he died, is supposed to unsettle us a little bit. It's supposed to remind us of our own mortality. And these verses aren't the ones that you put on coffee mugs or sew into pillows or get a cool tattoo of on your arm, right? Like Methuselah was X number of years and then he died on your arm. Probably not that. See, death should be unsettling. We're not far from what God pronounced over man in Genesis 3, this uh, death being a part of the curse. Back in chapter 3, as a result of breaking God's law, God tells the man and the woman the consequence of their actions. In Genesis 3:19. "'By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread "'till you return to the ground, "'for out of it you were taken, "'for you are dust.'" and to dust you shall return death is unavoidable we're going to go back to the dirt see death is a result of the fall it will always be something that we mourn it's always going to feel wrong there's always going to feel something unnatural about death but it will be unavoidable see death reminds us of this reality of the curse we were reading 1 Kings yesterday in our men and women's Bible studies. And David, as he is preparing for his own death, he says it like this, that he's, uh, he's about to go the way of all mankind. He's about to go the way of all men. He's saying what's most true about humanity at his point in life at that point is realizing that we all die. We're all going, we're headed towards the grave. Samuel 14:14 says it like this, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Now in our society, we are fairly removed from death. Think about in ancient cultures. Death was a normal part of their everyday life. You had to kill animals in order to get food to eat. We don't not only have to kill our own animals to get food to eat, we don't even have to touch an animal until it's wrapped in cellophane at a fast food restaurant. Someone hands it out of a window to us, right? If we don't want to, we can almost completely remove ourselves from the reality of death that's all around us all the time. What do we do with our aging and our sick? We put them in homes. What do we do with our dead and our dying? We put them in hospitals. People die in ambulances and in emergency rooms. See, back in ancient world, people died in living rooms. People died in the arms of their very family members there weren't professional death experts. It was just what was expected. You got to take care of that and handle it. You buried your own family members. You had to deal with this constant reality of death. See, being shocked back into reality of death is shocking for all of us. When people die around us or we hear a story of death, and like last year, my neighbor across the street, he fell, broke his hip, ended up in a a long-term care facility, got COVID, and died. And all in a matter of a couple weeks, his wife couldn't be even in the same room with him. Had to watch him die over FaceTime. The reality of death should be unsettling for us. It should be unnatural. I can remember when my grandfather passed away, the lung lung cancer had ultimately ruined his, his body, and they'd sent him home to die. I can remember trying to sleep on the couch outside of his bedroom, and the death rattle had settled in. We knew that he was about to pass away, and so we held hands around his body, singing and praying as he finally passed. See, many of you, you you remember, you know the moment when inevitable death has come for someone you love when you're filled with emotions and you're grasping for hope, and when that moment comes, you're not looking for something that, uh, that someone has sewn into a pillowcase or put onto a coffee mug. At that moment, you need concrete, unchanging truth. You need hope that will not fade, hope that cannot be shattered. At that moment, you need answers. Flimsy cheeriness isn't going to cut it. You need to know that there is a God That death isn't the end, and that he has a plan to undo this. See, there is something more powerful and more inevitable than death itself, and that it is God himself. It is his ever-present reality that we have to look to in the moments of death. And this is how chapter 5 ends for us. After we see, and he dies, and he dies, and he dies. Look with me again at verse 28, chapter 5. Then Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and he called his name Noah. Noah sounds like Hebrew for rest, rest. He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us relief, who bring us rest from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. See, Lamech was hoping in a curse breaker, a rest bringer who would bring relief from the work and painful toil of life, this pattern of death over and over again, who would break that cycle. And so much so, Lamech believes in the promise of God so much that he names his own son, Noah, when he sounds like rest. But then Lamech, he too, would succumb to the way of all men and die not having seen the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise, but he dies trusting in God's nature. This leads us into the opening of chapter six. Let's look at the next verses at the beginning of chapter six together. Death reveals to us the truth about God's nature. Chapter six, verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took their wives, any as they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not ab- abide in man forever, for his, he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were in the earth those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Let's stop there for now. Let's just answer the obvious question here. Like, what is going on? Did someone slip a page of the Lord of the Rings in here? Like, I'm expecting to hear about hobbits here in a second. Like, Nephilim and giants, mighty men of old. I mean, see, scholars have really helpful questions to this, but like to say that this is a debated passage of scripture is an understatement, okay? But I, th- I think that like we need to get some helpful information. Here's some information from some scholars that I studied. Scholars tell us that the title, Sons of God, aren't like what we would think it would be at first glance. You think sons of God, you think Adam, right? Nope, this isn't sons of God as in Adam. This is sons of God as in angelic spiritual beings, probably angels, who were unnaturally taking humans as wives and having children with them. This is a perversion. These Nephilim would later be mentioned as the inhabitants of Canaan. Remember Canaan, the promised land, the one that Moses couldn't enter? He sent Joshua to go conquest root out all of the tribes in there, kill all the giants. They come back. Remember the spies in the promised land saying, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's these giants running around and they're going to kill all of us. So we don't need to go there. But God sends them there anyway saying, I will go before you. I am going to deal with these things. We even meet a character like this in the Bible. This is the, the violent giant warlord like Goliath in the story of David and Goliath. He's a descendant of what one of these people living in Canaan. See, with all that information, though, you still may be feeling a little confused as to why in the world is God mentioning this. Why is Moses include this here? I think we need to be confident that Moses, writing this story for us, is showing us the further descent of all of God's creation, every layer of it, into chaos. We've already seen man fall into chaos through his sin, And we've seen that all of creation is implicated in man's sin, and so that this descent, everything is circling the drain here. This is not just man's fallenness. This is creation's fallenness and brokenness. And even the spiritual being's brokenness and fallenness is being highlighted here. When you're reading the Bible and you see a character say that it, it sees something and then takes it for itself, that's just the biblical authors riffing off of Genesis 3. I mean, you're just like, you know, pulling a track off of Moses and throwing their own beat over it, right? They're just taking Moses' pattern here, design pattern of seeing something like Eve in the garden, and then taking like the fruit and enjoying it just for herself and her, her husband. And angelic beings here do the exact same thing. They see, they take for themselves, and this is a design pattern where we're meant to assume that something has gone horrifically wrong here. This is something that's horrifically wrong. And so God must do something about it. It is in his character to react to this and do something about it. And first, he limits the length of human life. At first, this seems to sound pretty terrible, limiting the length of human life here, right? But what do you know about any of these violent, giant warlords? Warlords. Think about the, these people throughout human history. Who are some of the most famous people of all human history? Are they not the giant warlords of all time who've used their power and they've used their control to be able to destroy human life, not to to bring flourishing, not to bring uh, the, and, and usher in God's good rule over His creation, but to claim it for themselves? This is the truth that's being pointed to us here. See, some of the most well-known people of history are these horrible, corrupt leaders. And if God let these horrible human leaders live forever, he would be unjust. It would be bad for all of mankind. This is even what our military and war is for. Ultimately, is it not to put an end to injustice so that wrongdoing can't continue? See, even before Adam and Eve leave the garden, God tells this and is revealed in the story that God knew it would not be good for mankind to live forever. So he puts a limit on our lifespan. So death reveals to us this truth about God's nature. This limiting of a human lifespan is ultimately God showing his mercy. This is God being merciful. He does not want all of of collective humanity to drive itself off the cliff with no hope of return. He wants our flourishing, he wants our good under his rightful rule, so like a good father, he puts a boundary in place for his children and for their good. My parents have a dog and his name is Jack, whereas my kids like to call him Jackie boy. And it's just, he runs around and he's like the the happy little dog on the farm and they got horses and all that stuff. And so once, uh, a couple months back, (laughs) Jack went missing for like over a week. They couldn't find him because Jack, he likes running around on the farm, but he likes to go outside of the normal natural boundaries on the farm. They found this sucker 15 miles away at like a a hay farm somewhere, like a corn maze on the other side, almost a Clinton from my parents' house. And if you don't know anything about rural Sampson County, like it's a miracle the guy didn't get hit by a car or like somebody didn't pick him up or didn't get poisoned or something weird, you know? And so now, that my parents have the dog back in their possession, somehow found him through Facebook, go figure that, it did something good. They found Jack, and so he has a special collar now. And the little special collar reminds him of the boundary that's been established, right? With a very helpful little shock every time he gets close to the boundary, letting him know, that's not going to be good for me. That's not going to produce my flourishing. (laughs) You know? So he is cared for under the protective care of my parents by establishing this boundary. He's safe, he's fed, he's protected. This is what God does. He puts this boundary in place for us and for human life to protect us from wrong and to keep us from going outside the boundaries and ruining and further wrecking ourselves. But in the case of God and his broken creation, this boundary, this good boundary wasn't enough. God's good world would continue to spiral out of control until God would need to intervene and allow this disordering, and ultimately the decreation of His world in order to save it. Let's look at these final verses together: verses five through eight of chapter six. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's one of the most sobering stories in all of Scripture. One of the most sobering and darkest days of human history. God looking out over all his creation. This is reflective of what God did at the end of chapter one, where God looks over all his creation, and he says, It's very good. It's all very good. So now in chapter five, in the beginning of chapter six, God looks out over all of his creation and says, It's all ruined. It's all Loss because of man's intention of his heart, his evil continually, the Lord regretted that the man that he had made man on the earth, and so it implicated all of creation. Not just man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, sorry have made them, blot them out. But notice verse eight. Verse eight jam-packed hope us. Verse eight says, but Noah found favor in, in the eyes of the Lord. There's so much hope wrapped up in those few words. They show us that death, this death that God's going to bring, requires us to live hoping in God alone. Only God alone. That he will rescue or be lost like the rest of creation to the hopelessness of coming judgment. Friends, which one of us can stand before God and confess that the intentions of our heart are anything but hopeless, evil intention all the time? Which one of us can stand before God and say, I'm righteous, I, I, I do good every time. That those. I'm the opposite of this thinking evil continually. I only think about good. None of us, not one of us can stand before God and say anything like that and it actually be true. See, not me for sure. I think impure thoughts. I desire prideful things. I struggle to love even my wife and my kids continually the way that they deserve. All of our hope for rescue, for the coming righteous judgment of God, is in a righteous rescuer, one in whom God finds favor, one who's gonna bring rest. And if you do, in case you don't know, Noah isn't the guy. God is going to restart creation with this dude, and it takes him about two seconds to blow it up. The whole story of the Bible will be building towards the arrival of the one who would bring true rest, not just be a signpost pointing to the one who's going to be a true rest, but would actually do it. Rest from the curse, rest from death, rest from the suffering. He would do it by suffering the floodwaters of death himself to bring us through to the eternal life with him forever. that We're made for, like back in the garden, this eternal life that we're supposed to live in constant communion with God. There's going to be one who's going to do it. So now we are left with how to respond to these truths. What do we do with these truths that death brings about in our mind, to have to reckon with? See, we are left now with how to respond, and this question should be, what should change about us in the light of this truth if we believe it? But then also, there's the option of, what if we don't? What if you think, this is just a fairy tale? This is just some you know, ancient myth that I can either take it or leave it here. I don't really have to worry about this because I'm going to go home after this and get get some Bojangles or whatever and start living my life. I'll go go get a good workout in this afternoon. It'll be fine. No. See, let's get that premise out of the way first. You can choose to ignore these beliefs, but that does not change whether or not they're true. Cannot. See, you can keep on living life the way you want. I would not recommend it. If you don't believe me, Hear the words of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 18. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. We're living in those days. We, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is the days we're living in. If you ignore these words from Genesis and the words of Jesus, There's still a flood coming. The judgment of God is still coming. And I want to tell you that in your life, even if it doesn't look like rain right now, there is a flood coming and it will destroy you. It will. The good news is that the the rescuer has come for you, the one in whom God has found his favor and said, his works are pleasing to me. I like what I see when I look at him, his name is Jesus and he died to take that righteous judgment that you deserve on himself so that you can be rescued, along with the rest of creation. He will save you from the coming destruction and grant you eternal life in himself. And it's the best news in the world. Hebrews 9 says it like this, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment, so Christ having offered once, To bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The men and women who died in the early parts of Scripture were waiting for the hope of Jesus, eagerly waiting for the one who would come and reverse the curse, like Lamech. This means that once we believe in the work of Jesus, we not only are granted rescue from the coming judgment, but we have the ability to live well and one day to die well, hoping in the promise of Jesus. This is all made possible by God, by his own spirit that God said wouldn't dwell with man forever. Through Jesus, God has made a way that the spirit will live inside of us for eternity. And we can live well. We can fight sin that still remains with us. We have been granted eternal life. We are made to live with God forever. So in closing, there's two main things that I think should change about us in the light of these truths. And once we believe these things and change how we live and ultimately how we we die. The first is that we should live well. The second is that it should die well. I know, unoriginal, right? (laughs) But again, this will be the pattern again and again and again. Living well, dying well. This is what this passage tells us. So live well. And I want to encourage you to walk with God. And this is walking with God like Enoch did. So back in verses 30, Lamech walked with God and he hoped, I mean uh, Enoch, he he walked with God back in verse 21. And after he fathered Methuselah, and at the end of his life, Enoch is said to walk with God and then he was not for God took him. Being walking with God is a call back to the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the very beginning of all things. Back in Genesis chapter two and three, where they're walking with God in the cool of the day, enjoying deep relational intimacy and and, and communion with God, we are made for that same type of relational intimacy and union with God. And so I just want to ask you, how are you doing? Are you walking with God? Are, Are you enjoying God? Are you meeting Him in, in the Word? Are you are you praying with God? And these aren't hard things to do, but they are kind of hard things to implement in the in the regular rhythm of a busy 21st century life. Man, we've got barely enough time to brush our teeth nowadays, right? And so making sure that we're prioritizing time with God is something that we're made for, and God is going to honor that. God will meet that with his own grace and his own mercy. I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but Genesis 5 stands in sharp contrast to Genesis 4. Last week when Ryan preached through Genesis 4, it was story after story of guys that were just absolute dirtbags, absolute tools, who like showed themselves by their works and were bragging and boasting and just sinful dudes. In Genesis 5, we have a legacy of people that walked with God, that hoped in God, and our lineage is found in their legacy. Let's walk like them. Let's, let's hope in God like they did. So we aren't supposed to assume that these guys are perfect, but we need to walk with God like Enoch. Also, we should hope in God like Lamech. Lamech hopes in God and so much so that he names his son Noah, hoping and signifying that he hopes in the coming promise of God. And so this is for free. Did you notice that he fathered his son for so many years again? Did you notice that phrase again and again and again? He fathered his, you know, whatever the son's name was. Guess what, parents? We're to father our children. Like, our whole lives. It doesn't stop. We get to, yes, leave and cleave, and they get to go off and be their own, but our sense of responsibility and love and encouragement and pointing them to Jesus, it doesn't end. Even though they might not live in our house, we need to kick that kid out of the basement when he's 33. You know what I mean? Maybe 23, some of us. See, so we should pass down our hope in God to our kids and give them not an unnecessary reason to doubt in the goodness of God by being a bad parent. And finally, live confident in God's love for us like Noah. See, God looked at Noah, and the phrase is, He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That means God looked at him and said, I like what I see there. We know from Hebrews, it was faith that God saw in Noah. It was faith. So if you're here this morning, And you have faith in Jesus. Feel confident that God's love is for you. Because of the work of Jesus, we can live confident in God's love for us and that his favor rests upon us. That when he looks at us, he likes what he sees because he sees Jesus. Not because we're perfect, because when God looks at us, he sees the perfect perfection of his son that lived perfectly in our place. And after a life of living well, my prayer is that we would die well together as a church. In dying well, how do you do that? First, when you sin, repent. All of life as a follower of Jesus is meant to be one of continual acts of repentance. So that means when I blow it with my wife or my kids or someone that I love or in relationship with, I repent. I go to them and I say, man, I blew it in this area or I sinned against you in this area. Will you please forgive me? This is what we ought to be known for as followers of Jesus. And there is a death to self that happens when you confess your own sin like that, that in our day and age, it is rare, and the watching world is waiting for us to just follow through on what Jesus said would be true about us, that we would be one that do repent, that do love others really, really well, and we've all got to do this, or death will come and ruin our lives. See, this is going to be the way that we live until the day that we die, these Daily deaths to ourselves, to our own sin, and our ways that we would put ourselves as king and boast in our own works and say, no, I'm going to hope in the work of Jesus. I'm going to work in God alone. And then when death comes, hope in God through death to eternal life. See, this life is not the end. We will be with God in eternity, in perfect communion, and in relationship with him forever. And I want you guys to have a bold confidence in that. When you face really hard things, when the doctor calls and it's bad news and it's cancer, hope in God. When your family members are struggling with with marital problems or health or whatever, hope in God. When it's your turn, when the day comes, if Christ doesn't come back first, to face your deathbed, face it with confident hope. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the type of confident hope we're supposed to be met with as followers of Jesus. In the early church, right after Jesus ascended on high and the Holy Spirit was sent and and the the followers of Jesus began to multiply like crazy in the early church, one of the most frustrating things for all of the governments that interact with these Christians is because they didn't fear death. Roman emperors would take Christians and hoist them up on poles and pour oil all over them in order to light their gardens. And and, and Christians would willfully continue to care for the poor, frustrate those communities by upsetting and subverting the, the, the idol system and idol worship that had gone on in those communities. And it's because they didn't fear death. They say, what can man do to me? I already have everything in Jesus. This is the joyful confidence that we get to have as followers of Jesus. We know that death is coming in one way or another for us, but we know Jesus is on this side of it, and we know that Jesus is on the other side of it. And so we live in joyful confidence that Jesus is going to meet us in every way through life and in death. It's a church. Let me pray that these things be things that we hope in and live in, that we would live well that we would die well. And yes, death is going to remind us of the reality of the curse. That death is still a reality, but it also reveals to us God's nature that he's ultimately merciful and he's met us so we can live hoping in God alone that he will rescue us and that we can be confident of that. Let me pray for us that, that be true. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that we would be a people boldly confident that you are for us and not against us that in life and in death god you are our ultimate reality you're the one who's holding the universe together by the word of your power even though the the world around us feels like it's spiraling into more chaos and into more death jesus you meet us there you show your character you show your mercy you show your grace on display and god help us live in light of these truths help us believe these things help us not want to blissfully pretend that we are unaware of the righteous flood of judgment that is coming, but let, us, let it spur us into action to live in, in constant reality of you, Jesus, and also to, to tell others of the way forward, to tell others of the way that they can be rescued through you, Jesus, through your work, through your perfection, through your good news that you'd offer to all of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.